11 a.m., Riverbend. Thrilled you're, thrilled you're here. Um, why don't you, I'm so sorry, you just sat down. Can you please stand right back up? We're going to have a, te- uh, a reading from the scripture here in a second. Um, uh, we're, we're light about 45 guys to the church today because we just got back from our men's retreat. And it was so, so much fun. I was there teaching over the weekend and then I came home early in order to be here with you all on Sunday. Uh, the guys are still kind of, I think they're packing up camp and everything else. But we had an absolute blast time connecting and, and praying together. And then also all the guy things, you know, we did mountain bike riding and paddle boarding in the lake and some guys were out there fishing. It was awesome. It was also... Uh, just like guys, we always have to like relive our, our high school years. Like for some reason we can't not do that. So of course there was all kinds of competition and stuff like that. Competition that involved like splitting wood and diving into the lake and shooting basketballs. And, and it was just, it was a great time. By the way, my team, we won. Of course we won. And I told the guys I was going to rub it in this morning because they're not even here to hear it. And now they have to live with the fact that you guys know my team dominated the competition, which was awesome. Um, Okay, you guys, with that, we are going to have uh, just a reading from the scriptures. If you're brand new or if you're visiting, we are in this, uh, this new series, this fall series, we're calling Lord Teach Us to Pray. Um, and here we go. This is Jesus' primary teaching um, on prayer. It says this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and have a seat. Yes, come on. Again, this is so close to our heart here at Riverbend, is that we would become a praying church. In fact, um, over the last couple of weeks, I've just been reflecting on when the Lord gave us this building about four or so years ago. He also, at the same time, gave us a vision that our future would be we are a house of prayer, that you and I would come together and we would actually seek God and his face together as the scriptures teach us and that we would be contending and crying out and asking God to bring an awakening to the gospel that Jesus' glory and fame and his goodness will become famous in our city again. And that's really the heartbeat of our community and we've been basically inching our way closer and closer to this vision for a house of prayer over these last several years. And many of you are new, and many of us have different ideas that come into our mind when we think about prayer. And there's so much more that is all of the teaching that we've done on prayer over the years. We've only just barely scratched the surface, and there's so much more that I think the Lord wants us to enjoy and take part in. And so that's what this series is all about, is going deeper into that vision and then launching us into it together that we wouldn't just uh, be good at talking about prayer or you guys excited that your pastor's excited about prayer, but that we would be a community of prayer, right? I am excited. I'll stay excited. But it's, it's time for the excitement that is in us as a leadership team to translate to you all and that you would receive this new mantle 
that you are a praying person, you are a part of a praying church, welcome in. We're excited for you to encounter him. So last week we talked a little bit about our cultural imagination around prayer and how God wants to redeem the sort of stale, tired, boring vision of it that many of us have in our minds right now, and he wants to replace it with his vision for prayer. And today we're we're, we're taking that conversation a bit further, and uh, we're going to be talking about primarily the life of Jesus. Looking, number one, at Jesus' prayer life. What is his daily habit and rhythm of prayer? What does it look like? And then, two, we're looking at what we just read, his primary teaching on prayer or form of prayer in, in the Lord's Prayer. So we want to learn, uh, as, as is the case with everything, but particularly when it comes to this, we want to learn straight from King Jesus himself what his lifestyle is like and what it means to become his disciple. Again, often when we talk about the spiritual practices and things like prayer, we get transported to some ethereal land where we're talking to a mystical force in the sky or something like that. But that is not at all what Jesus has in mind for his church. He has a concrete vision for your prayer life that he wants for us to know about and to actually live. And he didn't just talk about it, he lived it in the form of the biography biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we actually get to see what that praying life was like, and then we emulate it. And we're not just emulating it, but we're emulating it in our culture and context. So right here in the midst of the 21st century in Bend, Oregon, you and I get to live out both the example, follow in the footsteps of Jesus, and live out his teachings. This is Something that we get to do, and I think it's extremely beautiful. Okay, so before we get into the Lord's Prayer, let's first look at Jesus' example. Luke chapter 5, in verse 15, it says, this is um, the biographical account of Jesus' life. And this is about a few, probably weeks or months into his public ministry. It says, yet the news about him, Jesus, spread all the more. So the crowds of people came to him to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and he prayed. So the first thing I want us to notice is that there is this counterbalance. That as Jesus' life of ministry picks up, gets full of people, the kingdom of God activity is speeding up and he's very busy as I understand it. He's getting alone with God in prayer. There is a Basic, there's this counterbalance. The busier life gets, the more Jesus goes away to the Aramos or to the mountainside to pray. Look again uh, now, just turn the page, one page over to Luke chapter 6. And it says this. One of those days when Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray, and he spent the night praying to God. Now that just makes us look bad, doesn't it? (laughs) When was the last time? I'm not asking anyone to raise their hand. This is not a place where we want to bring shame on anyone. But honestly, genuinely, look at that. Jesus is going out and all through the night, he's alone with God. Um, Luke chapter 9, verse 18. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? Now this is happening in a time in history where Jesus has begun to be really popular. He's got the crowds that are coming to him. People are starting to murmur and talk about who is this Jesus guy. And the disciples were beginning to piece it together. That he's not just uh, this 
prolific rabbi who is uh, really smart and has a lot of authority in his teaching and he is able to perform miracles like some of the other prophets did. They were putting two and two together that he was more than just announcing God's kingdom, but he was actually bringing the kingdom of God in his power and he was something more. He was that, that Messiah king. And it's right around here that they start to piece it together. A couple verses down, about eight days after Jesus asked them this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up to a mountainside to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. I love this passage. You can also find the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 17. We don't have time to unfold all of the layers here that are, that are here in this text. But I will say that there's something about Jesus' countenance that changed when he prayed. And of course this is a unique experience. I'm not suggesting that if you go and hike Black Butte right now and you call out to God that you'll be transfigured, right? That's not, and that's not what I'm saying. But there is something that is transformational about intentional time in prayer with God. And in fact, there is a, I'll, I'll just use the word, I think there is a glory to be discovered when we approach God in prayer. One last uh, example from Jesus' life in Mark chapter 14. There's many more examples, by the way. We're just hitting some of the highlights here, some of the high points. Uh, Mark chapter 14, verse 32 says, Then they went to a place called Gethsemane. And if you're familiar with the story, you know this is in the hours leading up to Jesus' arrest and eventual crucifixion. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And then he took Peter, James, and John, the same three, along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And he said to him, stay here while I, and keep watch. And going a little further, he fell down to the ground and prayed that if, the hour, if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Ah, such a good passage. So hopefully what you're starting to recognize is that prayer is like woven into the fabric of Jesus' daily life. So this is why when we ask you and tell you and challenge you and call you to develop a daily prayer rhythm, it's because we've learned it from the pattern that Jesus set out for us. Almost at every turn, especially when life is busy, sometimes all through the night, Jesus is stealing away to the mountains to pray with God. But what about when he's overwhelmed and life is chaotic and he's on the brink of just like complete despair? Well, then he doubles down and he actually prays some more. Again, he, he's, he's, he's honest about his prayer. He's raw in his prayer. He is desperate in his prayer. I think that Garden of Gethsemane prayer is kind of like in our vernacular, like, God, I do not want what about, what's about to happen to actually happen. Please don't make me do it. But in the end of the day, it's not my will, but yours be done. And now we all know the rest of the story. And this is an important lesson for us to learn about prayer. The rest of the story is that through this honest and raw and desperate prayer, Jesus doesn't actually get the thing that he wants on the surface specifically. But God instead gives him the courage and the power by the Spirit to take the effect, the full weight of humanity's evil into himself. 
and then to claim victory over the kingdom of darkness, and then to beat death as well. And prayer and Jesus' pleading with God is right there at the center of it. This is the climax of history. And Jesus' habit and lifestyle of prayer is woven inextricably into that climax of history. Okay? This is so critical. Prayer is woven into the fabric of Jesus' daily life. You and I, we follow his example. Therefore, our lives should be filled with prayer too. Again, sometimes we, people ask me, why pray? What do I pray? Why do I pray? And we often skip over this and Forgive me if this is just way too simple for you, but I'm kind of a simple person, so just bear with me. So we are Jesus' followers. Anything that Jesus does habitually and all the time, we need to pay specific attention to. So the reason or the why that you pray is because it was something that Jesus was doing all of the time. So anything that Jesus is doing all of the time, as his followers who put his things into practice is, man, we are going to be this kind of people too. This is part of daily, Jesus' daily practice. It's a part of our daily practice. Making sense? Of course it does. It's so simple, but it's so important. So if you're familiar with the story of the Bible, chances are none of what I've just said to you is a surprise. And maybe it's even like coming close to that dangerous thing that sometimes happens where we let things go in one ear and out the other. You know this already about Jesus. But the problem is, in my experience, that very few people really pray like Jesus prays. Case in point, when was the last time any of us stayed up through the night and cried out to God? Again, no shame, no judgment. Clearly, Jesus is a, um, is a as with all things, he's a savant at prayer. So we're just like very much coming along behind him. So zero judgment, just welcome to church. We're thrilled that you're here. But the, prom- the promise of the scripture and the point of these gatherings is not to stay where we are, but to be on a journey where we grow closer to, we'll never be the savant that Jesus is, but we can inch closer to him over time. So the point is, in a lot of ways, Jesus' life of prayer and our experience with prayer um, seems very different. And let's just have a thought experiment here. Again, the reason why it's important for us to keep coming back to this is because this is probably the largest obstacle that I face as the pastor of this church. It's people's inability to see the power of prayer or people's false conceptions about prayer in their mind that actually keeps them from praying. So you'll forgive me if I keep circling back to it, but this is, I believe, the biggest obstacle to you and the growth that God is wanting to bring in your life. And so let's have this thought experiment. What what comes into your mind when you think about prayer? What comes into your mind? Hopefully, my hope is that it's all of the positive images, you know, like a breakthrough that you had in college or something like that. You think about a time that you had with God or maybe you were at a conference or something like that. You hopefully had a transformative sort of image that popped into your mind. But for others of us, and I know that this is common because I hear from many of you, our vision of prayer is actually just clouded by a sense of discouragement and disappointment. Some people even experience doubt and angst around prayer. Sentiments like, is he really here? Is he going to hear me? 
if I cry out to him? Does he care enough to answer me? These are the core questions that I hear from many of you when it comes to coming to God in prayer. Many of us have this sort of detached, disconnected, lackluster, low expectation view of prayer, which explains why we don't do it. And if that's your experience, again, it's no wonder that we have such a high time in prayer. It's no wonder we feel like it's a chore. It's no wonder why we feel like it's a forced ritual. And um, so we need to, again, recover Jesus' experience of prayer. And, and I need to point this out. Like, although that might be your experience, that is not the experience of the people of God on the whole throughout all of history. And that's certainly not the experience of Jesus. And there are all kinds of reasons why we have such a hard time in our imagination of prayer and why we have such a hard time connecting with God in prayer. And you got to trust this process that over the next 11 weeks, we are guiding you through some of those obstacles that keep you from praying and helping you clear out some of the fogginess and some of the debris that actually keeps you from enjoying the miracle of prayer. But we have to begin here. We have to begin at this place that although this might be your current lived experience it's not going to stay that way and it's okay if you have a hard time even believing that right now because I have faith and my I know I know some people in this gathering have faith for you that it is possible for you to connect with God in prayer and I'm excited to see it happen I'm going to pray it in for you we're even going to take a few minutes at the end of this gathering to do that last week we talked about this concept that Eugene Peterson introduces us to from the book of Genesis which is this idea of redigging the wells and if you're here maybe you remember this or if you weren't here um, maybe you just need the reminder but in Genesis chapter uh, 28 um, we read this story about Isaac coming back to the wilderness where his father had been marching through the desert on the way to the promised land. And the desert in the Bible represents like spiritual uh, uh, oblivion. And right in the middle of the desert, God gives Abraham these wells of living water where there's no life, where there's no water, where there's only spiritual oblivion, no way to grow food, no way to sustain life. God, in his miraculous provision, is providing a sacred, holy, miraculous well for Abraham to drink from and sustain life. Isaac comes back about 70 years later, and the Philistines, who are the prevailing dominant culture of the day, had not valued the miracle of God, probably mocked the miracle of God, and filled in the miracle of God with all kinds of debris. So for Isaac coming back to the thing that God had provided, the sacred provision of God's life, was squandered and filled with debris. And so the, the role of Isaac was to get in there and to clear out all of that debris so that the beauty and the miracle that God had provided would once again be useful and give life again. And that's what it is when it comes to prayer as well. Again, this is, this is Eugene Peterson's premise, but I'm co-opting it for my message today. You like how I do that? Um, and, and what he's saying is that all of our cultural imaginations around prayer and the things that we pursue instead of prayer um, are, are, is like that debris. 
that's standing in the way of you enjoying and experiencing the miracle that God has actually provided for you. So this series is about clearing all that stuff out so that we can appreciate the miracle for what it really is. So Jesus' experience of prayer is where we start. And he wants to blow up those small, tired, boring images of prayer that we've had. And he wants to replace it with a compelling vision for you in God's presence on the daily basis. He, he's the one who says that the prayer of a righteous man or woman is powerful and effective, James chapter 5. He's the one who says, ask my father whatever you want in my name and he will give it to you. See, he, he, he's in the business of reclaiming a tired, boring vision of prayer and replacing it with his own. And that's my dream for you as your pastor, is that you would, you would, you would come to terms with this vision for prayer and that you put it into practice and that you can actually confidently, in the language of Hebrews, confidently approach God's throne of grace and that you could truly connect with him and and then ultimately where that's going to lead you if you, uh, if you live a life of prayer is that you are going to show others how to find the door into God's presence. That's what happens when you live a life of prayer. And I believe that many of you are already there with me. Others of you are still on your way. Whatever the case, I'm just thrilled that you're here and we're going there together. Again, part of our problem when it comes to prayer is that our prayer is, our, our vision for prayer is way too narrow. I describe this as being like the cosmic grocery list. This is how our cult, oh, I almost tripped over the mic stand. Uh, <laughs> let me just regain composure and you guys can laugh at me later. Um, so the cosmic grocery list is, is, is one of the cultural imaginations that we have around prayer, which is this idea of, you know what, God? Um, I would really love the job of my dream, please. The, the, the woman of my dreams would be awesome as well. And, you know, my student loan debt is getting way out of control. I would love it if you would please take care of that somehow for me. And you know what, that Andrew, I don't want to just be praying for myself so that Andrew dude looks like he needs a lot of help. I'll pray for him too. Or whatever. Like that's, that, again, it's not to um, trivialize our praying, but it's very often that our entire praying life is, is that cosmic grocery list, just lobbing up requests to God, inspecting and hoping that he's going to answer all of them in the way that we hope he will. But the scriptures are teaching a completely different story, that prayer is a super broad, broad category that includes intercession and includes asking God for things, but it's actually the starting point is way, way different. So our working definition uh, for, uh, for prayer comes from uh, Paul Miller's book, Praying Life. And it's this really, really great uh, book, top five book, if you will, on, on, on prayer, at least of the ones that I've read. And here's how he defines prayer. Prayer is the medium through which we experience and connect to God. Okay, so prayer is not an event at church. It's not uh, just a quick little something that we say before we eat our meal. It's not just like when we're in a moment of crisis. It's the primary way that you and I connect and experience God all throughout our lives. So it's, it's got to be bigger than the cosmic grocery list. And you were made for this. You were actually made for this. I was praying with a guy uh, yesterday at our men's retreat who I've known off and on for the last couple of years. And he came to me with a lot of desperation in his eyes because I could sense he's at a critical moment in his history and his story. And he asked me to pray for him. 
And he said he really wanted to encounter God and experience God. And we spent about 30 or so minutes praying together. And at the end of it, he said, I feel like I'm finally home. And I hope that's the experience that you begin to have as you pray. Is that you discover that communion with God is actually what you are made for. It's where you become fully alive. It's where you're truly safe. Right, so Genesis chapter 1 in your origin story says that God breathed into your lungs the breath of life, which is this really cool Hebrew wordplay that essentially means that like your body was designed to inhale and exhale oxygen in order to survive, you also need the presence of God to be alive and to be whole. It's the same sort of concept or idea, which I totally love. I think it's such a beautiful picture because we're all breathing right now. And we do it all of the time. All right, so, so how do we access this compelling vision for prayer? And then how do we actually live it? Again, Jesus is the one who gets us started on this. And he, um, this is, again, how he teaches us to pray. Primary section of scripture where Jesus is actually teaching us to pray. And this is what it says. It says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. On earth as in heaven. Love that scripture. And again, I think um, it's so critical that as we read these words, we actually hear what they what they what they have to bring to bear on your life. Remember, Jesus um, said to people when he was teaching, "Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear." And one of the problems, if you will, of the way that church has been done and how even we do church. So we quote the scripture a lot. And so it's very common for people, and I see it sometimes on Sundays, where we are reading the scripture, and it's almost like we kind of gloss over what the voice of God might be saying to us. And I hate to be that guy who's always pointing these things out. Because the last thing that I want you to experience from me is that I have a critical spirit because I genuinely do not. I just have a lot of love for you. And in my love for you, I never want you to grow cold-hearted to what God wants to say. He said, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Or will be done on earth as in heaven. So, so much that we can say on this pattern, right? But today we're just going to talk about the first couple of things and then we're going to finish the prayer to, not next Sunday. But the number one thing that you must learn, that you must know, and that you must believe if you want to live a praying life is that you need to know who God is to you. And you need to call out to him as your, as your father. This is the beginning of the form. God is your father. God is father. And if we're going to pray, we need to know what our relationship is to him. And we need to know how he sees us as his people. You see, he doesn't need the reminder. He knows who he is. He knows what his relationship is to us and all of that. So he doesn't need the reminder. But calling out to him as, fa as, as father, it does something to us on the inside 
where we change the, our perspective a little bit. We're not just um, tossing up requests to some cosmic genie in the sky somewhere. We are sort of reorienting and redefining ourselves around the reality that we are God's children. Remember, the scripture says that if anyone calls on the name of the Lord, they have the right to be called children of God. This is who you are. This is not by my proclamation, but by the scripture. The scripture says that if you've called on him, you have the right to be called children of God. One of the things that has always been so tragic to me throughout the years is that there are so many people who know that. They know what the scripture says. They quoted it in Awanas when they were seven years old. But there's some lie at the same time that's like hanging on to them and holding on to them and holding them back. And they're saying, yeah, I get the idea. I intellectually ascend to the reality that God loves his people. He is my father and I'm his child. However, there's something about me that's unlovable. I'm not worthy and I can't, it can't possibly be true of me. This is, again, in the obstacles that I see with people in their prayer life, there is some breakdown around their understanding of who God is to them and truly believing it. I had this experience yesterday with a gentleman that I was praying with, and he could have sworn there was no lie that he was believing. He thought he was thinking so clearly about God and about himself, but it turns out through our rhythms of prayer, there was a lie that he had been holding on to since he was six years old, something that was spoken over him, that he had been subconsciously holding on to, and it was hamstringing and hijacking his prayer life. And we saw God take that lie away from him, and all of a sudden, he described the truth just washing over him, and he said that he felt like God was embracing him for the first time. And so it is so possible. This is the tricky thing about the way that our heads and our hearts work together. We can know things and think that we believe them, but deep down there's some attachment to some kind of lie that's actually holding us back from in real life, trusting that God is a good father who actually loves you. And this is where we have to go to work. And I'm happy, as your pastor, I'm happy to walk you through that in a personal way. It's often connected to your story and your childhood and all of that. So as you begin to internalize and see God as your true father, what happens is it begins to flow out of you. What happens is we recognize God as true father, and then the next couple of visions of him become very clear. He is the king on the throne of heaven, and he is the one who has all authority. And because you are a child of God, you have full access into his throne room. Again, Hebrews calls it the throne of grace. And this is where you belong. This is your home now. This is where you find your, your center is in God's throne room. And this is where, we, where the battle is won and lost in prayer is when we are here on earth focused on our adverse situations and circumstances and we can't see out to what's actually going on, which is you are God's child and he is your father and you are with him in the throne room of God and this is your home and this is where you belong. See, A.W. Tozer famously wrote, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Why does he say this? I think it's because your whole concept of reality, of spirituality, 
your life, it flows out of who you conceive God to be. And that's particularly evident in how we pray. So for example, if you have a deistic view of God, a God who is, yeah, he's there, but he's far off. He's probably not paying attention to me. He probably doesn't care deeply about the things that I'm going through. If that's what you believe about God, then prayer is a last resort. It's just, again, it's just a ritual. You barely have any faith that God's going to answer you. If you think he's an angry God or he's angry with you, you're going to become insecure when you pray. You're going to maybe even be afraid of him in a negative sense of that word. You won't want to approach him. If, you're, if you think God is withholding, then you'll be anxious he, 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 that he's not going to give you what you need. If God is boring to you, then you're probably not going to approach him at all. John Tyson is this pastor in New York. I love what he has to say on this topic. He says, unless you break the stronghold of false images of God in your mind, you will never be drawn to prayer. The angels have been locked in a room with God for thousands of years, and they haven't gotten past the word holy. Holy, holy, holy. And then he says the part that stings a little bit. If you're bored with God, you may be the person who's boring. Or it could be that you're just distracted by the trivia in our culture. So when you break through that boredom, you'll be drawn to the glory of who God really is. I love this. I think he's on to really something big here. Our small, uninspired visions of prayer are usually indicative of our small, uninspired visions of who God is. And I believe the reverse is also true. It's just about getting a right-sized view of God and getting that image right in your mind about who God actually is. And when what you believe about God is actually based in reality, what's true from the scriptures and revealed in the universe, everything changes. And that's what the story of the scriptures is all about. It's this amazing revelation of who God is. He's coming close to you and me. He's making himself known on a deeper and more personal level. I love Exodus chapter 34. It's one of my favorite passages of scripture right now. It's always changing, but this is one of my favorites right now. It's a pivotal moment in the story of God. And God is speaking his name and his character to Moses. And when we think about God in theological categories here in the West, we often look at it through a post-enlightenment lens, which simply means that we use words like omnipresent, he's always around, or omnipotent, he's all-powerful. All of those things are true. We don't want to erode your faith in that at all. It's very, very true. However, when God reveals himself, it's more than that. It's crazy. When God reveals himself to his people, there's lightning and there's thunder. Mountains are being torn apart. And he's also very personal. He's announcing his name. He's, he's describing his character. This is what he says. He says, this is my paraphrase, I'm Yahweh. I'm Yahweh. I'm compassionate. I'm gracious. I'm slow to anger. I'm abounding in love and faithfulness. I keep my promise of steadfast love to thousands of generations. When God says his name aloud, this is what it sounds like. It's not boring definitions in the index of a theology book. He's saying, this is who I am, and it's accompanied by, by thunder and lightning. And it's so, so personal. So that in and of itself is amazing. He is good. He's relational. He's knowable. But it gets way better in the work of Jesus when he comes onto the scene. Something about Jesus' work in the world fundamentally changes our relationship to God. He says, now you can actually start calling him dad. That's what changes when Jesus walks in 
onto the scene and the work that in the world that he's up to. You're adopted into the royal family, so now you can start calling him by that name. This is the number one and most important thing you must know about prayer and about your life with God in general is that you can call God your dad. Again, chances are you really already knew that. Right? Even in churches uh, where I would say prayer is mostly dead, they probably have a really good theological statement on their website that God is Father. So why is it? Why, what's the issue here? Well, the issue is that there is a world of difference between checking the box on a theological or a doctrinal statement about God as Father and actually talking with your dad. These are radically different things. And so often in an intellectual, sophisticated, post-enlightenment society, we go, yeah, I, I know all this stuff, dude. I know all this stuff. And I'm going, you're not getting the point. Your dad is there. His arms are outstretched for you. And he loves you and he wants you. And you can't access him. And I see so many of us like feeling this tension in our spirit of like, man, I want that. But there's hesitation and fear. But remember when, when God is reaching out excuse me, when God reveals himself to Moses in Exodus 34, Moses is through tears and I think shouting, God, show me your glory. He says, show me your glory. See, he was, he was pursuing God. He was, he was driving to experience God. He was searching and longing and desiring after God. And I think the crisis of our time is not a crisis of knowledge, I think it's a crisis of resolve and hunger and passion for him. That's our crisis. There's so many podcasts. There's so many books. There's so many churches you go to. Listen to all the sermons. You've done all of that. That's great. That's fine. The crisis is about the resolve in your spirit that God actually loves you and you can actually take him up on his promise and you can actually seek him and you can actually find him. And it's possible in prayer. The reason why we know there's a crisis is because when you look at the data, most Christians spend seven minutes a week in prayer. And pastors do almost no better than that. Almost no better. The potential, the possibility of you experiencing God is too great for you to not take him up on it. When we were praying at the beginning of the men's retreat with the guys, I was like, guys, I just, my fear, I, 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 I confess vulnerably, my fear is that there's all kinds of gifts and there's all kinds of wonderful things that God has in store for us. But because we're being distracted by the trivia in our culture, and because of whatever else that we're carrying, we're actively saying no. We're actively saying no to God. And the tragedy of that is not that God is going to reject you. The tragedy of that is we're leaving just the beautiful potential and possibility of God with you on the table. That's tragic.
My daughter is 10. I love her to death. She is, her name's Isabel. Most of you know her. And sometimes she acts her, her age, and other times she acts like she's 14, which is scary to me when she's like acting like a teenager. Like, for example, she's now becoming more embarrassed by me, which th to me didn't happen until I was like 15. Sorry, Dad, there was a moment in there where I was embarrassed. But for me, it was at 15. She's embarrassed. And not when I, like, bring her up in church. She's fine with that. It's like me as a human being is embarrassing to her. She doesn't want me hanging around her friends is basically what it comes down to, which I'm working through. But anyway, no, we, uh, most of the time, though, we do. We really do have a really special friendship and relationship. She's an amazing little girl, and I'm so proud of who she's becoming. And one of the things that I love about her is she asks these really compelling questions. I remember, like, a handful of years ago, she asked this question. She said, Dad, can God build a swimming pool so big that he, even he can't swim in it? And you guys are like, oh, that's kind of cute. For me, as a theology nerd, I'm like, that is the most fun question that you could ever ask. I love that. So she's got this really beautiful, inquisitive mind. And uh, she's just like, there's so many things that I could tell you about what I love about my daughter, Isabel. One of my favorite things, like what happened last night, I left the men's retreat early so that I could be here. I got home at about 9 p.m. I found out that Isabel, my daughter, had stayed up because she wanted to see me, and I opened the door. She says, Daddy, and runs into my arms. It's like the best possible thing that you can possibly receive as a dad. Um, but so much of my relationship with Isabel is that kind of stuff, the everyday stuff, and it's connecting with her, talking with her, Imagine if she only came to me when she needed something, which is what I'm told the teenage years are like, and I'm just blissfully choosing to ignore that and pretend like that's not coming. But imagine what would the relationship be if it was just she was coming to me just when she needed something. A good relationship is so much more than just services rendered. Like God is not like a store like owner who has some things that you can come and transact with him for. That's not what God is. That's not the relationship he intends you to have. A good relationship, it builds trust. This is Isabel knows about me, that my intentions are good for her. She knows that I'm here for her, that I love her, and that she can trust that I will keep her safe and take good care of her. And this is the kind of relationship that God is longing for with you. And it's there for the taking for you. Which leads us perfectly to the next and final point, because I'm already over time. The next line in the prayer is, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. That word is a word we don't use often, and probably shouldn't. You shouldn't probably walk around and say hallowed all the time. It doesn't really make sense, given our common vernacular. Um, but it's a good Bible word, and it means to honor as unique or holy. Honor is unique or holy. And when we think about holiness in the West, we're often thinking about holiness in the moral quality sense of that word. And that's really, really good. That's very, very true. Holiness is a moral thing. But it's more than that. God's holiness has an aesthetic aspect to it. It's about, holiness is about his beauty. Not just like the absence of evil or things that are bad, but it's the presence of beauty. So when you encounter... And you make yourself aware of the presence of God. You are drawn in to enjoy that side of him, that beauty, uh, and enjoy his goodness. And what you find is that, like, even, even still along the journey, none of us, we're not asking for anything yet. We're just coming into the presence of God, and we're being with him, and we're enjoying his goodness. Not asking for stuff. We'll get to that in due time. 
But Jesus is pointing us to a much greater, deeper reality. The purpose of prayer is to enjoy the Father's company. There's so much, like, when people say that prayer doesn't work, I'm so saddened by that because usually what my, I mean by that is my grocery list hasn't been, like, completed. But, but the, the beauty of prayer is actually, like, any moment, like, let's go. You want to talk to them? You want to be with them? You want to enjoy them? He said it. He said it. He said he'll never leave or forsake us. He'll be with us till the end of the age. That's what he said. And often we're so content to just live without that. Psalm 27.4. My favorite psalms, King David. One thing I've asked. This only do I seek. I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Meditate in his temple. In verse 7 it says, hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says you seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. You you get what I'm going after right now. Again, the crisis is not knowledge. If that were the case, we would all be like, along with Jesus, savants in prayer. The crisis is hunger. The crisis is resolve. The crisis is we love other things besides his presence. So we distract ourselves into spiritual oblivion and we leave the possibility and the potential of you enjoying God on the table. So this series is about addressing the resolve, addressing the hunger, and activating that stuff in you again. Because deep down, I see it in your countenance, in your eyes, and so many times over these last several months, we've seen incredible breakthrough with people in prayer. Incredible things. It's hard to even put into words what I've seen God do in the last couple of weeks. Again, the writer of Hebrews says, anyone who comes to God must believe he is, and he's a rewarder of those who earnestly seek him. I just want to take him at that word. And this is our hope for you again, is that you would get a glimpse of Yahweh, and like Isabel and I, you'd be drawn into deeper and deeper Uh, relationship with him. In real time, I'm just kind of editing down because there's so many more things that I wish I could say. But let me just end with a quick little story. So yesterday, um, again, we're at the men's retreat. A bunch of guys just were hanging out. We're having a great time, mountain biking, fishing, all the stuff. And this guy comes to me um, and he said, hey, um, can can we pray? And I could just see in his eyes that this was a significant moment for him where he was just desperate. And it was not, not something that he was saying, but it was something that I could feel from him. And this is a guy that I've known for years and he's been in and out. He made a decision to trust in Jesus and then he got distracted and he admitted this. And this isn't to shame him or anything, but he just admitted he's been distracted kind of coming in and out and in and out and in and out of the community of faith and following Jesus. And what he described to me is he felt like God was done with him. That's what he had said to me. I feel like God is done with me. Is there anything left in my relationship with him? And so over the course of about an hour or so, As we prayed together, I just saw not just his perspective change a little bit. I believe that I witnessed a a miracle. And like we pray for like Talia's cancer to go away. 
And we pray for people's, you know, ailments and their bodies and stuff like that. And we also need to learn to pray for there to be real miracles in the hearts of human beings. And there's this, 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 this emotional healing that needed to take place in him. The reason why I say that is because he describes never really experiencing God. And although he maybe wanted that for himself, he just felt like it just wasn't real to him. And he asked me what he thought he should do. And I said, well, this is what we're going to do. We're going to pray. And, and I asked him for permission for a little bit of spiritual authority over him. He gave me that. And I began praying over him, speaking the truth over him. I began to have vision after vision. And God's voice became clear to him. And we found out that although he, he thought he, he had it clear in his mind who God was, what we found out is that even though he was a, you know, double master's degree, had his life together, successful, typical bend guy, kind of presenting very, like, put together. What I saw was something come undone in him. And what I saw was a little boy uncontrollably weeping in God's presence. And not just, um, and not, not out of sadness or any, anything like that, not out of grief at all, but out of true joy. And at the end of our time together, he just looked up at me and he just, he said, I, I don't know how to describe what I just experienced. And that is the, you guys, that is, that is it. That is the goodness of God. That when you encounter and when you experience him, it's like joy and peace fills you. And it's also something that English words just fail to really get across. So with that, many more things I'd like to t tell you about and talk about, but it's time. And what it's time for is it's just time to pray. And I just want to, um, with a little bit of boldness, just invite you to really pray. I talk sometimes about token praying. And token praying is just kind of like, okay, the sermon's over. Thank you, God. Uh, no, no. Amen. And I get that temptation. I even feel it in myself, but I want to resist that. And I want to instead just, let's pray together. And let's just lean into the possibility and the potential that God is here. And that you can truly encounter him right now. So can we do that together? Awesome. Let's stand and let's pray. Of course, um, we just... We don't want anyone to feel out of place or like this is strange or weird. I understand it might feel weird in a room full of people. Maybe you don't know everyone quite that well yet. And you're like, what, is, what are we doing? I, I get it. It's okay. But certainly, please don't feel pressure. But certainly just feel like an invitation from God to, to draw near to him. So what I want to do is just begin by um, closing our eyes and opening our hands just reminding you of the truth. The truth is that 
you can approach the throne of grace with confidence. Because if you have believed and you've trusted in Jesus, that means is that you are called a son or a daughter of God. And what that means is that it is your right as a child of God to go confidently and boldly into God's throne room. So we just want you to imagine yourself there with him. Just whatever that, whatever image that sort of conjures in your mind, I just encourage you to go as God's beloved kid into his throne room. We just want you to imagine yourself there with him. And now we just want you to notice Notice that he's not afraid or worried. He's not worried. He's not weary. He's not overwhelmed. He's got full authority. He's overcome and overflowing with light. The scripture says that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. I just want you to notice what begins to happen you meditate on your place in God's family and at his throne. Begin to notice the peace that that comes over you. The wonder that comes over you. Notice just the gratitude that comes over you. Technically speaking, I don't deserve this gift. It's grace from him. He's freely giving it to us because of the work of Jesus. So, Father, may we never take your name for granted and how we get to call you by that name. Jesus, we say thank you for how you sacrificed so that we could enjoy you. And Holy Spirit, we thank you for being the answer to the promise. The nearness of God in the earth. And I just want to invite those of you who are are wrestling with the tension is what Andrew's saying, is it worth it? Is it real? Can I trust it? I get the cynicism. I get the, the hardness of this for some of you. And the invitation is just to say, okay, God, I yield. I surrender to you. It's essentially an admission that that it's better to have him in control than us. So we just pray, God, would you come and take your rightful place as king of life. We want to experience your nearness, God. We want to experience your closeness. 
you said it's possible for us to encounter you like this. And this is what we're urgently and eagerly going after. So now as we continue through the rest of our gathering, we're going to continue responding. So again, just let's not move on to the next thing necessarily, but let's just keep on in the posture of wanting to give God praise and honor and glory for coming near to us. Let's sing out praise to him. Ryan and Kylie are gonna lead us in that and let's just continue responding in prayer, in praise. And then of course we'll come into the tables of communion as we always do and that's, that's a, a, a symbolic representation of what Jesus did in order to make this life possible. So again, don't jump out of the present moment as we are praying and seeking God together and responding to Him. But as you come forward to receive the bread and the cup, just meditate on what He has done that's made it possible for you to enjoy this life. Jesus, you are King. We love you for it. And we worship you.